Matthew 23. Turn with me to Matthew 23. I want to ask you an, a kind of an unusual question. Start this way. If you were to meet someone from the future, I mean, you could literally verify that they had gotten into a time machine and traveled here from 40, 50 years from now, and they were to give you advice on the future, would you take it? What if they were to tell you, I know of a company that's going to be the next Apple, the next Google, the next Amazon, would you invest money in that company? What if they were to say, hey, I know what happens to you, I know your destiny, and I can help you avoid certain mistakes. If they told you, for instance, that you were going to die of a massive heart attack, would you start eating green leafy stuff instead of fried stuff? Would you lay off the donuts and eat a little yogurt and then get a little exercise once in a while? Is that what you would do? Or if they said, you're going to die in a terrible car wreck, would you drive real defensively with your hands at 10 and 2 and keep your phone away from yourself so that you don't, you're not tempted to check it? I don't know about you, but I would listen to the words of someone from the future. And the reason I say this is not because I have a time machine. I wish I did, but I don't. But Jesus is even better. Jesus came to us as someone who was God in human flesh. He was the past, the present, the future. And he knew what the future held because he holds the future. And so his words to us, many of his words to his disciples were also words to us. Knowing what we were going to face, he was preparing us. And today, we're going to look at three things he would say, three warnings from the future for you and me. And this is part of our series called Glory Days. We're looking at the last week, the week leading up to Easter Sunday, the first Easter. Well, many people call that week Passion Week or Holy Week. Those days that led up to the most important events that happened in the history of the world. And we've talked two weeks ago about how Jesus rode into Jerusalem during Passover week on the colt of a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy. Last Sunday, we looked at how Jesus, the first thing he did when he was in the city on a Monday morning, he went into the temple and basically had a one-man riot where he drove everyone out of the temple. He essentially made the temple obsolete. He, he said, this is, there's a new way. There's a new way to get to God, a better bridge. But what did he do the rest of the week? Scriptures tell us, especially Luke, that every day that week, he came back into town, went straight back into that same temple, and taught all day. Now, the leaders, the religious leaders, had been furious at what Jesus had done. They had immediately said, we've got to get this guy. He has to die for what he did. He has defiled our sanctuary. He has disrupted the commerce. Uh, basically, he has hurt our standing in the community as leaders. We've got to get him. So there he is in the temple all week long. Why don't they just arrest him? The, the Romans let them have their own temple guard so they could enforce laws. Why didn't they send those guards to go over and arrest him and put him to justice? Because they were afraid. Because Jesus had a crowd of people around him wherever he went. These people who were there to hear, to hang on his every word, to, to gain uh, maybe gain healing or some other miracle. Maybe people who were just trying to evaluate Jesus. They'd heard all about him all their lives and now they wanted to see him for themselves. And they were afraid if we arrest this guy, people are going to throw a fit. And one, one riot will bring the, the wrath of the Romans down on our city. So they decided to do something else instead. They said, let's try to catch him in our words. And it's sort of like, it's sort of like in, a, in a political campaign when an opponent of a certain candidate hears that he said something foolish or something scandalous, maybe an open mic moment when he didn't know his words were being recorded. And of course, they'll take that and, and they'll keep it very secret because they want to win on their own merits, right? They don't want to 
Y'all are paying attention, aren't you? No. They, they run that quote. They, they print books with it in it. They, they put it on YouTube. They want everyone to hear the silly thing that their opponents said. And that's what the opponents of Jesus were trying to get him to do. They said, let's go. We're the most learned men in Israel. Let's go and ask him the hardest questions we know of. Let's stir up the biggest controversies, things where half the crowd's going to be on one side and half is going to be on the other and in some way trip him up, get him to say something that's going to alienate the crowds from him. And it never worked. They tried this before. It never worked. You know why? A very simple reason. Jesus was smarter than they were. And everything he would ask them, every, every little, everything they would ask him, every little uh, rhetorical trap they would lay for him, he would turn it back on them. And so the last verse of chapter 22 actually says, um, from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. I love that. That's a funny verse to me because what it says is these guys went in, determined to trip Jesus up, and it ended up backfiring on them completely. They're like, let's get away. It's just getting worse and worse. We're digging a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves. So these are the religious leaders of Israel, and they have now fled the temple like scared dogs. And Jesus begins to talk about them in their absence. And he's essentially saying, watch out for the religious leaders. I know they're the leaders of the people, but watch out for them. Let's, let's start with what he said in chapter 23. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Now, I'm going to stop there. That entire chapter is often called the seven woes chapter because seven times Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. And he tells them the reasons why they're missing out on salvation. But Jesus isn't actually talking to the scribes and Pharisees. He's talking to the people, to the crowds. Now, if you've been following Jesus for three years or even a shorter amount of time and you've been listening to him, you've been paying attention, you know this is not a new message. He's been warning the people all this time. But for folks in Jerusalem, I mean, Jesus did not live in Jerusalem. He wasn't often there. This is the first time they've ever heard anyone talk about their leaders that way. The scribes and the Pharisees, the people he's talking about, were considered the holiest of the holy. They were the leaders politically and religiously of the community. And Jesus isn't even saying that they're immoral people. Because in terms of strictly moral issues, like the way you speak and the way you treat people of the opposite sex and the way you uh, observe religious commandments, well, they were good at that. They were very good at it. And he wasn't saying they were doctrinally incorrect. He wasn't calling them false teachers. In fact, he says, hey, they sit in Moses' seat. They teach the word. They're pretty good at that. He's saying, just don't live like they live. Basically, he's saying they're wrong. They will lead you to destruction. They will lead you away from God. And, and this was horrifying stuff for the people in that crowd to hear. And Jesus is saying that because what he's essentially saying is God set up Israel. To be a light in darkness, to be a, a, an oasis in the desert, to draw all nations to itself. And instead of drawing people to God, the leaders of your people are 
driving them away. Besides that, he says, their religious observance isn't even sincere. They're more concerned with how they look to you than they are with getting right with God. They're more concerned with making sure everyone thinks they're righteous than with loving their neighbor as themselves. Jesus is giving them a warning. He's not slandering people behind their back. What he's doing is he's saying, if you want to follow me into the future, you can't follow them too. It's either me or them. It's come to this. I've warned them. I've tried to change Judaism from the inside out. I am a Jew. I've tried to help them follow me. They've rejected me completely. So it's come to this. If you want to follow God, and if you believe I represent God, then you have to choose me or them. And if you follow them, you're going to be led away from the path God has for you. And that was a shocking thing for them to hear. So Jesus' first warning from the future is not just for them, it's for us. Because he knows we'll have the same struggle. His warning for us and them is, if you're not careful, religion will lead you away from me. If you're not careful, religion will lead you away from me. Now let me tell you what I don't mean when I say that. Because Jesus is not one of these modern people who says, well, you know, I like Jesus okay, but the church I don't like. I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Let me just say this clearly. The church, and by the church I mean that group of people, whether it's First Baptist Church or any other church, any group of people that meets in Jesus' name in a church building or in a house or in a, a school building or a strip mall or a hut or under a shade tree to, to sing praises to God, to learn more about Jesus and to collaborate to change the world in His name. That group of people all over the world is the unique creation of Jesus Christ. There are other groups similar, but nothing quite like the church. It is His body. It is the means through which He does His work on earth. It is His bride. He loves the church. So people who slander the church are not with Jesus. But what He is saying is this. Religion, even if it's doctrinally correct religion, believes all the right stuff, can be the worst thing that ever happened to a community if its heart is not with the heart of God. If its motivations are something other than glorifying God and blessing people in His name. Religion can, can do more harm than good. Religion can be one of the most harmful uh, substances or, or forces in any society. Even if all of its doctrines are, are true. If its heart is not where it should be. And I hate to say this, and I I really, really hate to say this. You may disagree with me. I hope you're right and I'm wrong. I hope when we get to heaven, God will say, "You, you just were way off, buddy. But here's what I believe. I believe that what Jesus is saying in chapter 23 in the seven woes has come true to some extent in the American church of the 21st century. And I say that because when I read the Scriptures and I see what was true of the scribes and Pharisees and the very, very religious people there, I say that we as a whole, and you take American Christianity as a whole, we've got more in common with them than we do with Jesus Himself. And here's my evidence for that statement, okay? You take the people in the first century who were the most socially and morally marginal. 
You take the prostitutes, you take the tax collectors, you take the people who were of questionable parentage, you take people who had committed other sins that made them outside the bounds of polite society, who weren't welcome in the synagogue, people who religious society, the religious establishment had rejected. Those were the people who were most attracted to Jesus. In fact, that's why he was known as a friend of sinners. His enemies called him a friend of sinners, thinking that was an insult. He took it as a compliment. Those people loved Jesus. They flocked to him. Everywhere he went, they went. They were his most devoted followers. And it wasn't because he was permissive and and lax on the rules. It wasn't because he told them what they wanted to hear about their lifestyle. It was because, contrary to what this world tells you, most of those people deep down inside want something different for themselves. They know they're not experiencing all they were meant to experience. They know their lives aren't what they ought to be. But what they see in religion is just a big no, a big thumbs down. And what they saw in the religious leaders of that time was, you are rejected by God and he keeps you alive just to fuel the fires of hell somewhere down the road. And what they saw in Jesus was someone who had the light of divinity inside of him, who had the audacity and the grace to look into their eyes and say, there's a better way than the way you're living and I'll show you what it is. I love you. I created you. I want you to be born again into something new. They were so excited to receive that second chance, that new birth. They followed him into the kingdom. When people who you and I would look at and say, that's a righteous person, put their foot down and said, no, I'm not following you. And my question to you is this. If you go to the average American church and you walk from pew to pew and you shake hands and you get to know people, how many of those socially and morally marginal people are going to be sitting in those pews this morning? I say very few in most of the churches I've been in. I look at First Baptist Conroe, a church that I love, a church that I think is as warm and as welcoming and as non-judgmental as any church I've ever been in, but I don't see many of those people here on Sunday mornings. Where are they? We know they live in our community. They're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our coworkers, they're our relatives. I know that they're drawn to Jesus. I know that if they saw him, they would like what they saw. They would desire what he has. Why aren't they coming into God's house to hear the gospel and to change their lives for good? It used to happen. Why doesn't it happen today? Have lost people changed? Or has the church changed? Maybe maybe a big part of it, I hate to say this, is For whatever reason, they just don't see Jesus in us anymore the way they used to. Because if they did, if they did, I'd wear out waiters once a month doing baptisms. And that'd be a good problem to have. So that's a pretty serious charge that I just laid against us as as a church, as as churches in the United States of America. What are we going to do about that? You know, when Jesus was talking to the religious leaders in his day, And he accused them of all these things, of pushing people away instead of drawing them in. You know what he said to them? He he said, you know, you're very eager to pick the speck of dust out of your neighbor's eye, but you can't because you've got a log in your own eye. And I think that, that image was intentionally humorous, but it was also serious. He said, get the log out of your eye. Then you'll be able to help your neighbor. I think we as a church... And this is our vision. This is the vision we've been communicating for the past six months. We need to just, we need to come before the Lord in humility and say, Lord, renovate our hearts. 
change us. We're too used to seeing the world through our eyes. We want to see the world through your eyes. We want to see people outside the church through your eyes. The people who on a Sunday morning are sleeping in because they stayed up till four or five in the morning, or maybe they're out jogging, or they're out teeing off um, on the the golf course, or they're out fishing, or or whatever they're doing, they've got no thought of God in their lives. Let, Let us see them through your eyes and long for them the way you long for them. That's what we ought to be praying. Lord, renovate our hearts. So we can become the people who can draw others to you. Because again, I'll say this again, it's not about our programs, it's about people. Because none of those people who I just mentioned care whether the preaching here is good or bad, or whether the music here is is contemporary or traditional. None of them care how soft our pews are, how beautiful our building is. They're not looking for that. But if they meet you, and they see a difference in you, and they see joy in you, and love, and acceptance, and righteousness and integrity and they'll see something they're missing and that's how the community gets changed renovate our hearts lord jesus said all of this all of this and and when he got done he got up to leave and his disciples i think this is just my theory the bible doesn't say this i think the disciples were so defensive for their own jewish system that they wanted to say something in defense of it and so that's what happens next in chapter 24 verse 1 Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call attention to to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, before I read verse 3, let me just say, here's what I think the disciples were doing. They're like, okay, okay, so... So the religious leaders are bad, right? That's what you're saying. But, but the temple's still good, right? I mean, I know you cleansed it yesterday and, and you were mad about the temple, but, but the temple is still good, right? Look at it. Look how beautiful it is. Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the beauty of this exquisite building. He just says, whole thing's going down. It's going to burn. It's going to f- collapse. It's dead. It's gone. Give up on the temple, Jesus said. It's no longer an issue. Now, they've got a long walk from there back home to Bethany where they're spending the week. And it's up the side of the hill, the Mount of Olives. So it's a long walk. Two miles isn't that long of a walk, but when you're going up a hill, it's long. So the the disciples have heard this, and they've got a long time to kind of digest this. And when they get up to the top, here's what happens next. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they've thought it through and they're like, okay, Lord, all right, so the temple's going down. When's it going to happen? And, and when's, when's the world going to end, basically, is what they're saying. To them, they were asking one question, because in their minds, the end of their temple was the end of the world. That was only going to happen on the day of the Lord when the whole world went up in flames. When's this going to happen, Jesus? Jesus knows they're actually asking two questions. He knows that the temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD when most of those guys are still alive, but that his return, when this world becomes something new, is something further out in the future. So when you read chapter 24, which we're not going to read the whole chapter, when you read chapter 24, what you hear is that there's a lot of things coming that are going to be deceptive, a lot of things that are going to scare people, a lot of things that are going to uh, freak people out. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to make people think, okay, This is the end of the world. And the whole theme of chapter 24 is, don't be worried about it. 
You hear wars and rumors of wars? Don't sweat it. Those things happen. You see, you see plagues. You see uh, natural disasters. You see things and you think, oh, this has got to be the end. No, it's not. You hear a rumor that I've come back. Don't you believe a word of it? In fact, Jesus actually says in verse 36, if you could put that up there, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. He's essentially saying, don't try to predict it. Don't try to guess when it's going to happen. Just go on and live your life the way it was supposed to be lived, the way I've told you to live it, and I'm going to come back when I come back. So Jesus' second warning to us from the future If his first warning was, if you're not careful, religion will lead you away from me. His second is, don't be deceived about my return. Because Jesus knows that down through history, he's already seen the future. He knows that down through history, a lot of his people are going to get all worked up about events in the news or about some preacher who stands up and says, I know when it's happening. They're going to be deceived by that stuff. And and you're going to look foolish. More importantly, you're going to make God look foolish. And you're going to drive people away from him. So Jesus says, don't get... Don't be deceived. Don't don't become hysterical. That's the whole point of the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24. Ten years ago, ten ten or so years ago, there was an incident between Lebanon and Israel. Probably don't remember this because there's been a lot of incidents since then. But in this particular moment, uh, Hezbollah, this group in Lebanon, fired some missiles into Israel. Israel retaliated, fired missiles into Lebanon. And it was a pretty big deal in the news for about a week. And there's a famous TV preacher, some of you may watch him sometimes, and he, after these events, or right in the midst of these events, got on his program and he said, Jesus' return is imminent. These are the signs, this is the sign that the Lord is about to return. In fact, his exact quote was, his hand is on the door. You get this picture of Jesus just about to fling that door open and come on into the world. And I had some very good friends who got very, very excited about that. And they came to church the next Sunday and they were telling everybody, you better be ready because, you know, that pastor said. And I got to thinking about it. How do you think that looks to unbelievers? Yes, are we supposed to be excited about the prospect of Jesus returning? If someone told you, hey, I heard today that Jesus is coming back in a couple of hours, would you be excited? I hope so. You ought to be excited. Because that's the beginning of everything good we've ever dreamed of. But if the world sees us rejoicing because a war broke out, how does that look? Does that speak to them of the love of Christ? Or does that say we're rats jumping off a sinking ship? Don't be deceived. And, And by the way, in case you're wondering, Jesus didn't come back 10 years ago. And as far as I know, that TV preacher did not get on his program and apologize or say, well, I guess I was wrong. You know, I forgot to carry the two when I was doing long division. And y'all can take this or leave it because this is just my advice. But this is how I operate when it comes to other preachers. If I hear somebody try to predict when Jesus is coming back, and I don't just mean... Trying to, set, trying to narrow down the hour or the day. I mean somebody who is trying to interpret current events according to Scripture with a high degree of certainty. I don't just mean somebody who says, wow, these are really interesting times. I wonder if this is the end. I mean somebody who says, well, this happened, and that's how it applies to Revelation such and such. When I hear someone do that, my advice to you is stop listening to him forever. Turn off the TV, don't, don't watch his program, 
walk out of the church, never go back. Because that man is claiming knowledge that Jesus himself said he didn't have. In verse 36, not even the son knows when it's going to happen. Now Jesus knows now because he's back with the father, but in his human form, he had disavowed that knowledge. People who try to predict it, people who stir up that kind of hysteria are disobeying the commands of God. They're not fit to lead or to preach. By the way, they make a good living doing it. You know, humility before the Word of God, saying, I, I'm, I'm just, I don't know anything unless God tells me exactly the truth. That is a good policy for all of us, but it's not one that makes you rich. Certainty, where there is no certainty, is what sells books, is what gets donations, is what brings people into your church. Don't be deceived. Jesus went on to tell these four stories in the midst of his Olivet Discourse, one, uh, one in chapter 24 and the rest, the other three in chapter 25, and we won't read those. But he he's tells these four stories that all have a particular point. And I'm going I'm to summar, summarize them real quickly. You'll probably be able to catch the point. The first story is about a servant who was left in charge of his master's estate while his master went away on a journey. And the servant realized the master had been gone longer than he thought he would, and so he became derelict in his duties, began getting drunk, began abusing his fellow servants, and then suddenly, one day, unexpectedly, the master was back, and it wasn't good news for the servant. In the second story, there are these ten bridesmaids getting ready for a wedding. It's a festive occasion. They got the right clothes on. They're invited. Everything's great. And then the groom shows up at an hour they don't expect him, and five of them have prepared everything they need for the wedding feast. The other five waited until the last moment, and those five get shut out. Even though they have all the qualifications, otherwise they weren't ready for the wedding feast to begin, and so they're uninvited. In the third story, it's called the parable of the talents. We call it that, at least, because a master, a very wealthy man, leaves different amounts of money with three of his servants saying, invest this and make money out of it. Now, he, he gives them a, a, a measurement of money called talents, and a talent in that time was a lot of money. It was like 20 years' worth of salary for the average working man, so more money than most Israelites will ever see. And one servant gets five talents, and one gets three, and one gets one. And when the master comes back, the, the first two servants have doubled the investment. They've worked so hard. And the third servant has been lazy enough that he just buried his money in the ground, didn't even want to risk it. And so his, his master heaps wrath on that third servant for not doing anything with the opportunity he's been given to bless the master. The, the fourth and final um, story is probably the most famous. It's the story of the sheep and the goats where Jesus says, when I come back, I will judge. He doesn't say when God will judge. He says, I will judge. Pretty audacious. I will judge the world and I'll separate them into two camps like a, like a flock of sheep and a flock of goats and the sheep will be the people who will spend eternity with me enjoying my Father's blessings and, and the, the goats will be the people who will be separated from me forever. And the difference between the two, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is that the sheep are those who, when they saw someone hungry, they fed them. When they saw someone thirsty, they took them a cup of water. When they heard that someone was in prison, they visited. When they heard someone lacked clothes, they, they clothed them. When someone was sick, they were there at their bedside. And when, when they did those things, they were actually loving me. 
And he's not saying that you earn your way into heaven by compassion. He's saying, if you want to know the difference between my people and, and the people who aren't my people, it's not that one's in church and one isn't. It's just the, that my people, the ones that bear my image, are the ones who are there first when someone's hurting. That's the sign. That's, that's who my people are. And so the point of all these stories is Jesus' third warning from the future, and that is, be ready for that day. Be ready for my return. Be ready for the day when I come back. In verse 44 of chapter 24, he says, So you must be ready, for the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Do you hear that? Because if you're into predicting when Jesus is coming back, this is literally the only clue you have. The only clue you have as far as the time of the day is it's going to happen when you don't expect Him. One of those kind of paradoxical things. So if you wake up tomorrow and you're like, I predict Jesus is coming back today, it's pretty much guaranteed He's not coming back that day. Because He's coming at a time when you don't expect Him. And what that means for us is it's going to be a day like any other day. We're going to wake up. We're going to go to work. Some of us are going to be off work, so we're going to sleep in. Some people are going to be getting married, so they'll be getting dressed up. Some people are going to be going to a funeral. Some people are going to be going to a hospital to give birth. Some people are going to be are going to be uh, in the midst of an argument. Some people are going to be at the grocery store shopping and right in the middle of all this everyday business. Jesus is going to walk onto the stage and everything's going to change immediately. And there will be no warning. And once he's there, the curtain drops and it's over for the life we now know. And so you better be ready. And those stories he told, those four stories that illustrate that, I find them chilling. I find them some of the most horrifying, some of the most uh, terrifying stories in all the Bible and all of literature. When I was in college, I was required to take a foreign language, so I chose Spanish. I wish I would have paid more attention and that I would know Spanish today, but I didn't. But one semester, one of my professors, the professor I took was a lady named Elena. I don't remember her last name because she just told us to call her Elena. She was actually from Spain. And she, from the Castile region, she was not much older than us, about 26 or 27, and she was so much fun. We enjoyed her so much. She was casual. She was fun. She had this, even though she was from Spain, she could do this spot-on impersonation of a Texan speaking Spanish. (laughs) And so she would say, gracias, just to make fun of us. And we loved taking her class. Now, one day... I had a paper due in another class, and I had put it off. And so I skipped Spanish to finish my paper and turned it in. The next day, the next time we met for Spanish class, I got there, and Elena was talking about the test we just had, and a light bulb suddenly went off in my head, and I was like, oh, yeah, the day I skipped class, there was a major test that day. I missed the test. But I was like, hey, no big deal. This is Elena we're talking about. She's cool. She likes us. So as soon as class was over, I went up to her. I said, Elena, I'm so sorry. I didn't even try to lie. I said, listen, I skipped last class because I had a paper due in another class. I know it was a stupid thing to do, but I missed the test. Can I, can I make up the test? And she said, oh, well, let me think about that. And I said, all right. So I came back to her office the next day, expecting that when I got there, she was going to say, okay, here's your test. Sit down, take it. She met me at the door with this terribly sad look on her face. And she said, and I'll never forget her words. She said, I think no es posible. And those were bad words to hear. And the look on her face was incredibly sorrowful, and she looked almost as sad as I felt. And I I think about that when I think about Judgment Day, because I think about people who will stand before Jesus, 
people who stand before him and see a look of intense sorrow on his face. Because the Son of God does not want anyone to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. And he came and he paid the highest price so we could be saved. And he loves every single person he's created. And he wants them to spend eternity with him. And it's not going to make him happy to say no. And they're going to see that sorrow on his face. Because he is absolutely loving, but he is also absolutely righteous. And he's not going to bend. Once it's over, it's over. And you've got to be ready. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be ready? If Jesus came back today, what are the questions we will be asking ourselves? There are four, I think. And based on the things that I know you won't be able to do once Jesus returns, okay? Four things. Number one, have I gotten right with God? And that's the most important, obviously. Have I gotten right with God? Everything else, I mean, all other questions, I think, combined are less important than that one. This is going to determine where you spend eternity. And the good news is that it's not about the idea of, of you doing more good deeds than bad deeds and being in church enough and, and memorizing the entire Bible and donating your, your income and, and doing all this good stuff and abstaining from all this evil. If that was the case, none of us would have any hope. The good news is Jesus made a way. Jesus took the test for us and pass with flying colors, and we get to receive his good grade, all we have to do is say yes. The bad news? The bad news is that most people in our culture have heard that story, and many of us have heard that story over and over again, and we still won't accept it. And a lot of religious people won't accept it. They're like, well, you know, I, grace is great, but hey, I'm a good person. Look at all these good things I do. Look at all these vices I abstain from. Look how often I'm in church. And I got baptized when I was nine, by the way. Or I got confirmed when I was 12. And look at me in my first communion dress. Doesn't that mean I'm good? You've got to walk through the door Jesus opened. There's not another way. In a moment, if you haven't done that, you're going to have the opportunity to do it once and for all. But I think the second question that's part of being ready is, have I gotten right with others? Have I gotten right with God is most important, but... I believe there's going to be regrets in heaven. And I may be wrong about this. I don't think we're going to be brainwashed when Jesus comes back. I don't think we're going to forget all the mistakes we've ever made. And even though we're going to be so glad to be with him, those of us who by his grace live in the new earth, I think we're still going to spend some time looking back on our lives on this earth and thinking to ourselves, I really didn't handle that relationship the way I should have. You know, God brought that person in my life and we got crossways with each other and I was so stubborn and pig-headed. And sure, they were too, but... I could have fixed everything if I just would have gone to them and had one simple conversation. If I just would have said, here's what I did wrong, and I admit that I did it wrong, can you forgive me? If I just would have forgiven this person over here, and yes, he hurt me, and yes, it hurt deeply, and I didn't feel like forgiving him, but if I just would have gone to the step of saying, I forgive you like Jesus has forgiven me, everything would have been okay. I think there's going to be regret on the part of a lot of us that we waited too long to make things right with someone. And so I'm warning you, because Jesus warned me, I'm warning you, get those relationships right now because you don't know when he's going to come back. And the third question, have I, got, have I helped people who are hurting? One of the things that we won't be able to do in the new earth is feed somebody who's hungry or help someone who's poor or, or reach out to someone who's lost their job and they need another one or, or visit somebody who's lonely or 
or sit down with someone who's confused or try to help someone who's mentally ill kind of get things straightened out and get treatment. We won't be able to help people. We won't be able to visit people who are sick or, or people who are in prison because none of those things will exist in the new earth. Now is our chance. Now is our one chance with God has given us all these resources and all this time and, and opportunity to bless him through blessing others. Now's the time. Don't put it off. Don't say, I'll do it when I'm retired. Do it now. And the fourth, the fourth question, have I done all I could to bring people to their father? Have I done all I could? Because think about it. If you had a sibling who was estranged from the family, wouldn't that eat you up inside? Wouldn't you pray about it all the time that, that they would come back and be reconciled to the rest of you, you and your brothers and sisters and your mom and dad? I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you love on them as much as you could? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you constantly show them, we still care about you? And, and you wouldn't nag them. I mean, you wouldn't want to do that because that would be counterproductive. But every once in a while, wouldn't you come to them and say, hey, it, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up. Are you going to come this year? Hey, we're going, to be, we're going to be cooking hot dogs and shooting fireworks. It's 4th of July. You want to come? You know, family reunion's coming up. It's not the same without you there. I'll come pick you up if you want. We have that opportunity now, but not then. We have that opportunity now, but not once Jesus returns. And there are people God has brought into your life. Not just your relatives. All of us can think of some relative who's distant from God, but I'm talking about your next-door neighbor or the person across the cul-de-sac or the person who drives your kid's school bus or the, the person who you buy meat from or the person who's the golf pro at, at, at your, when, you, when you tee off. You see him every, however often you do that. Um, the, the, I'm talking about your coworker. I'm talking about your boss. I'm talking about people you know who God has brought into your life for one purpose and one, person, one purpose only. Because they're his child, and you're their brother or sister, and it's your job, your opportunity, to try to win them back to the family. And just like a, just like a, a pig-headed brother or sister, you can't drag them back, they're stubborn, but you can work on them. And that's what we ought to be doing. Do you have a list of people you pray for, for their salvation? Do you have a list of people who you're working on and, and hoping to win back to the Father? Because here's the very, very honest truth. Someday we're all going to face Jesus, all of us. They say that on your deathbed, nobody says, I wish I'd spent more time at the office, and that's probably true. I believe that when Jesus returns and we see him for the first time, none of us are going to talk about the Astros or the Texans or the Cowboys. Or none of us is going to talk about politics or the weather. And none of us is going to say, man, doggone it, I wish I would have made more money. I wish I would have gone on that diet so I could have fit back into the jeans I wore in high school. I wish I would have bought that nice car. None of us is going to say that, but I think these four questions we've just covered, I think that's going to be foremost in our minds. That's all we're going to think. And the great news, the very, very good news is, Jesus, unlike the rest of us, Jesus didn't need someone from the future to come and tell him his destiny. He already knew. Because Jesus came from the future. He'd been there already. He knew what was going to happen to him. And even though he knew that his destiny was to die in Jerusalem, Luke tells us he resolutely set his face for that city. Weeks before Easter, he, he said, I'm going to Jerusalem and nobody can stop me. I want to get there on time. And even though he knew that Judas was going to betray him, he didn't ostracize Judas or say, you're out. 
And even though in the garden, we'll see in a couple of weeks, Jesus was there praying and he looked up and saw a mob with torches and clubs and swords coming towards him. Any one of us would have hid or run. Jesus didn't. He walked straight to them. And when Jesus was beaten, he didn't fight back. And when Jesus was falsely accused, he didn't protest. And when Jesus was nailed to a cross, he didn't call down legions of angels to rescue him. He paid the price. You know why? Because his brothers and sisters were estranged from their father and his death was the cost of them coming home. The only way they could be brought back. And that's why you and I are saved. And the very, very, very good news, the best news I can tell you is what that tells us about God is that His love for us is so deep that the volume of our sin and our capacity to hurt Him will never overcome that love. His love for us is infinitely greater than our capacity to sin. Amen?